in the way we need to be spoken to this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in the Gospel of Luke still in uh, chapter 6. Um, we have uh, a topic here that we're going to look at that uh, in a moment I'm going to talk about what uh, the world thinks of this and what we should think about it. But before I get started, I just want to give like a big idea. If you're a note taker, you can write, this is the one thing that we want to remember if there was nothing else from the sermon. Uh, the big idea then is if our teacher is Christ, we will be like him. If our teacher is Christ, we will be like him. And some points to go along with the passage are first that we will receive like we give. Second, we must see if we would lead. And third, we must have health if we would heal. So in our passage of study this morning, we find in particular two phrases that many people use and quote. Some people know they're the words of Jesus and others don't. Very often, one of these two phrases is used to shut down anyone questioning someone's behavior. Judge not, right? Yes, this is Bible language. It is Jesus' language. But the secular person uses it as a bludgeon to set down anyone who may challenge them on their attitude or behavior. You can't judge the one who is depraved, they will say. You're a Christian. Don't you know you're not to judge others? And the second phrase is one that Jesus said, but before Jesus said it, some version of it had already been used around the world. Uh, and today people use the phrase as well, can a blind man lead a blind man? And my hope is that after this morning's preaching, we will all have a more complete understanding of what Jesus is actually saying here in the passage, not based on what we sometimes hear is said about it. Let's look at the passage then, starting at verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out that speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck, take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. You may remember last week I was talking about imperatives and the eyes of English teachers light up when you start talking enthusiastically about grammar. So here I go again. We have four imperatives here in the first part of this passage. Judge not, condemn not, forgive, and give. So these are powerful commands Jesus is giving, yet we know that in other places in Scripture, we're told to use good judgment. We are told that we can judge people by their fruits. We are told that judgment begins in the church, so we should be sure to purge the evil brother from among us. And clearly in the Old Testament, God set down page after page after page of rules about how his people were to judge and execute justice. So is Jesus taking all of that and throwing it out the window here? Certainly not. Yet here are words in red that Jesus said 
and he says to judge not. And we know that Jesus would never contradict the scriptures. So rather than seeing this as Jesus rewriting the scriptures, let us see it instead as adding further context and further thought to it. Jesus is showing us the mind of Christ, and Jesus himself will be the final judge of all. And if Jesus himself will be a final judge of all, then he must not think that judging ultimately is evil in itself. But we want to find out what this means. So again, our big idea is that if our teacher is Christ, we'll be like him. And the three points to go with that are we will receive like we give. We, we must see, that's C-S-E-E, if we would lead. And we must have health if we would heal. I think when you look at these four imperatives, two are negative, do nots, and two are positive, something to do, let us look at the two negative for a moment. Judge not and condemn not. These are clearly linked. We are to judge not, or we could say instead, do not judge or do not condemn. We can say right off that he's clearly not talking about every kind of judgment or every kind of condemnation. If he were, then a Christian could not be a judge or a policeman or a governor. That's clear. But neither could they be a school teacher who must judge whether a student did the assignment right. They could not be the person who administers the driving test. They could not work in any job where any sort of evaluation takes place. So clearly, Jesus is not saying here that every type of judgment is forbidden. Let's remember the context. Right before this, Jesus had talked about loving your neighbors, remember? It seems to me that the type of judgment and condemnation Jesus is talking about here is on a very personal level. We should be very careful in our judgment of other people. Let us remember that much of our judgment actually takes place just in our thoughts alone. It might not be anything we actually do something about or say anything to others about, but we judge in our mind. It makes us feel good, right? We judge others constantly. We might not want to admit that out loud, but I would guess that everyone here has judged somebody within the past week. We see someone failing where we've succeeded. And we internally judge them at the same time as we elevate ourselves in our own eyes. And this is why Scripture warns us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. The danger when we judge others is not a danger to them as much as it is a danger to us. If judgment is the evaluation, condemnation is the punishment or discipline. So that same school teacher who has judged the student's homework as insufficient now must apply some sort of condemnation to the judgment. Some teachers are very severe. Some are softer. Most of us during our school career had teachers on both ends of that spectrum. Well, who are the ones that you look back with affectionately? Which are the ones that if you went into the grocery store and you saw someone being rude to that former teacher of yours, would you step in to defend them? And which ones, on the other hand, were so harsh in their treatment of you that you would watch them being mistreated and you would simply stand back and think to yourself, how does it feel? So Jesus is not getting so much at the required judgments we must sometimes make in life. But the attitude with which we do those things. If we judge graciously, then we will be judged graciously. 
If we judge harshly, we will be harshly judged. If we are quick to forgive, others will be quick to forgive us. If we do not condemn others when they commit an offense against us, then they will not be as quick to condemn us. The positive corollary to that is forgive and give. If we are quick to forgive others, they'll be more likely to forgive us. If we're generous towards others, they will tend to be more generous towards us. These are characteristics that should mark every Christian. By the way, these are more like Proverbs in this sense. So they're not some universal absolute, like Proverbs are that way too. Not every person you forgive is going to forgive you. Not every person you withhold judgment on will spare you any judgment. But as Proverbs are generally the way things will go, then we can expect that as we live graciously towards others, we will also receive more grace. Robert Stein said this, Do not judge. What is being forbidden here is not the legitimate exercise of judgment in law courts or in church discipline, but the tendency to criticize and find fault with others. Marshall aptly observes, Is it not the use of discernment and discrimination which is forbidden, but the attitude of censoriousness? Uh, In other words, censoring people. Uh, It forbids a Christian from finding status by negation, in other words, looking better by criticizing others as worse. The use of the present imperative in this and the next prohibition can better be translated, stop judging, and suggest that readers should stop doing what they are presently doing, rather than that they should guard themselves against ever doing this sometime in the future. Does that make sense? In other words, the, the grammar in the Greek original, which I don't usually get a lot into those details, is, is more of the idea of not, uh, as we read in the English, don't judge, it's stop judging, and meaning you know you're already doing this, right? Then it says, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap, for with the measure you will use it will be measured back to you. So we're far removed from the bazaars and marketplaces of the days when Jesus made these statements. So it's worth taking a little bit of time to explain probably what this is referring to. Most of our groceries that we buy are carefully weighed and prepackaged. And if they're not prepackaged, there's a scale that measures and you know that you're paying exactly for the number of ounces you purchased. Um, But in those days, if you needed to buy some grain, for example... You went to a seller, you would tell them the amount you could pay and how much you were getting, and they would measure it. And if they were very honest, and if they wanted to make sure you got the amount you were paying for, they would measure out the grain, and then they would shake it. What happens when you shake it? It settles, right? The grain would settle. Like, you know when you buy a big bag of chips like this big, and it's got this many chips in the bottom? that settles, right? So the grain would settle, and more would be added And the very generous merchant would go beyond that. They would pile more upon it so that it was spilling over. In other words, there being people of integrity who would say, I'm making sure that my customer gets their money's worth. One of my first early jobs was at a drive-thru called Burger Time. And and when our friends came and we're putting fries in the bag... We would scoop a bunch of extra. In fact, they probably got like one fries times 10. And if they ordered a single burger, we might give them two burger patties and make it a double. Now, I'm not sure the management approved of that. I'm pretty sure they didn't. But we liked to be generous with our friends. 
and especially when it was no cost to us. <laughs> but uh, I met a guy once who worked at one of the very first Wendy's restaurants, and he was telling me that as he, and he was a young man at the time, uh, that Dave Thomas himself came into the kitchen because uh, he was touring some of his stores, and he came to this particular store. I think he said it was store number 14 or something like that. And, and Dave Thomas came and saw where they were putting the ingredients on the burgers, and he said, put more on, be generous, put, make, make sure you put lots of that on. He wanted the customers to get what they paid for above and beyond. I'm not sure if it's that way anymore. I usually get one slice of lettuce on mine, but um, you know, there's penny pinchers and managers that come in and, and uh, tell you to do it a different way, maybe. But Dave Thomas wanted to be giving people a good deal. And that should be our attitude towards others. Generous giving should be the mark of a Christian life. Jesus concludes this saying with, For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, you may believe this only applies to the giving part, but I actually believe it applies all the way back to verse 37 and our negative imperatives as well. This is what I think it applies to each, the way I think it applies to each one. Judge not, and you will not be judged, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Condemn not, and you will be not condemned, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Forgive, and you will be forgiven, for with the measure you use, and it will be, given back, it will be measured back to you. And then give, and it will be given to you. Of course, we know that applies. Now, that's my personal interpretation, but I think it fits with what Jesus is saying about the attitude here. He's making a point about how we feel about other people, how we have an attitude towards other people. In each case, our attitude will be determinative of how many people will treat us. So again, our big idea was, if our teacher is Christ, we will be like him. We'll receive like we give, and we must see if we would lead. So let's move on. In verse 39, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? This was actually a fairly common phrase then, and even people who know little to nothing about the Bible today use this analogy, right? Now, when Janelle and I were still somewhat newlyweds, we were given tickets to a musical in downtown St. Paul. There was one of those fancy affairs that only occasionally in my life do I get to take in something like that. But there was an intermission, and we went out to the lobby, and we saw this couple. The man was clearly blind. He had one of those sticks, you know, that they use. And the lady, I assume, was his wife, was leading him through the crowd by holding his elbow. And this lady had on some of the thickest glasses I've ever seen. And I was even more of a smart aleck then than I am now. And I leaned over to Janelle and I said, talk about the blind leading the blind. <laughs> to which I got an elbow in my side and I, said, I protested. I said, don't worry, they probably can't hear either. It was a, it was a very unsanctified moment. <laughs> uh, but that phrase is very common, and perhaps it's somewhat rightly applied in that case. But it's such an obvious phrase, you don't even really need to explain it much, right? Clearly, we must see if we can lead. Now, Jesus is using the example of the physically blind to make a point about the spiritually blind. Paul warned Timothy about laying hands too quickly on someone. A leader in the church must not be a new convert. Why? Why? 
Because while they may be seeing better than they were, they still have a lot to learn. A new convert can only teach so much. Some people truly believe that little training is needed for Christian leadership. So you, you may have been in churches like this where like, hey, they, they came in and they had a pulse and they seem excited. Let's put them on the worship team or let's put them in a Sunday school class teaching our kids or let's do this. And they just came in the door. And uh, there's not a lot of wisdom in that. And in fact, I could say it goes against what Scripture teaches us, which says do not uh, quickly lay hands on, which means they used to appoint people to positions of leadership by laying hands on them. Uh, too early. So, you know, these churches might say, well, someone, as long as they're willing to lead, they should be given the opportunity. But you wouldn't put a first-year medical student in charge of a brain surgery. You would want someone qualified. You wouldn't take a kid who just got their driver's license and have them drive a huge RV with a boat trailer into a tight parking lot. It would be foolish to put a novice in charge of an important task. And that's just as true in the church as anywhere else, if not more true. And so we want to be careful that we're paying attention to things like that. So we don't want the blind leading the blind in the church. And then the image of the pit here alludes to uh, the Hebrew proverb that depicts the judgment of God. And it's, I'm going to show you two places in Scripture where this is found. First in Isaiah 24, starting at verse 17, it says, Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundations of the earth tremble. And Jeremiah said something very similar. Terror, pit, and snare are before you, O inhabitant of Moab, declares the Lord. He who flees from terror shall fall into the pit. And he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare, for I will bring these things upon Moab in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. So we don't want to fall into that pit. How do you get into the pit? You have a blind guide that leads you there very often. Or no guide at all, and you're blind and fall in. Verse 40, then Jesus continues and says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but... Everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Sometimes you hear the phrase, the student has become the master. Have you ever heard that phrase? So usually this means that he's exceeded his instructors. Sometimes a music teacher will have the privilege of teaching a student who goes to the highest level of their discipline. And a loving teacher would be glad to see their student far exceed their own abilities. But a jealous teacher may want constant credit. Whenever that famous student of theirs is being talked about, they say, oh, I was this teacher. I just want everyone to know I taught him in third grade. You know? In our world, with exponentially increasing knowledge and the technology to quickly attain that knowledge, it's true that in many fields, the student today will far exceed their teachers in knowledge and accomplishments. Think about it. If you were an engineering student finishing up at MIT 20 years ago, and you've seen advancements in technology so amazing since then, then it's hard to imagine that the student, what the student graduating today is going to see in 20 years, right? It's pretty mind-boggling to see how far technology has advanced in such a short period of time. But in Jesus' day of teaching... That's what we're trying to get at. What did it mean to the people he was talking to at the time? That's always an important rule of Bible study. First, we want to say, what did it mean to them? 
There was no internet. There were no libraries accessible to the average person. And in those days, a student would rely almost entirely on their teacher for all of their learning. Fortunately, you don't have to do that. You can go double-check whatever I teach you, and you can go see if it's true by looking at Scripture, which I encourage you to do. But in those days, you wouldn't have probably had a Bible to go home and check. And so who do you rely on? You rely on your teacher. For all their learning, they had to rely on someone who taught them. And it wasn't as though they could fact-check their teacher. There's just no way to do that. So you would hope to have a trustworthy teacher, an experienced and a well-learned teacher. And then you would work as a student to become like that teacher. In time, we become like those that we are around. So when the disciples of Jesus spent time around him, they probably started to imitate certain mannerisms and phrases and so on. I read as I was studying this passage that in the big heydays of Billy Graham when he was getting super famous, all of a sudden a whole bunch of pastors started holding their Bible in their left hand and using their finger like this. Why? They're emulating someone that they saw as a superior in a sense. And that's what we tend to do. We tend to follow uh, and become like those that were around. So when the disciples of Jesus did that, they, they probably did that as well. But when Jesus said here a disciple is not above his teacher, he was pointing out that the disciple needs to understand that humility demands that a student recognize they are not better than their teacher. It's hard to learn anyway if you have that attitude. And you teachers know what I'm talking about, the kids that think they know more than you. Um, it's hard to teach them. And it, but in those days, it would be extremely unacceptable and disrespectful if a student in any way tried to think of themselves as better than their teacher. Um, Kent Hughes said this, Jesus is speaking of a time when the disciple had only his rabbi as a source of information. To claim that he was above his teacher would, was the height of presumption. The, dis, the disciple's one aim was to be like his teacher, and he attained this only when fully taught. Yet everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Jesus is our ultimate teacher. So if we are growing in his teachings, we will become more like him. And then we will apply these things he says in a better way that reflect his character and imprint upon us. And judging like he would would be our way of judging with mercy and grace, not condemning Forgiving like he forgave, even those who killed him. And generous. With time, fellowship, mercy, and grace, Jesus showed his generosity. Everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So again, if our teacher is Christ, we'll be like him. We will receive like we give. We must see if we would lead. And the third point was that we must have health if we would heal. Verse 41 and 42, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out that speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. This one seems so obvious, but let us remember for a moment that Jesus is not here talking merely about physical things. He's talking about spiritual blindness. If you're following someone who cannot see where they're going, you will not end up somewhere good. 
And if you are following someone who snickers at the idea of learning doctrine or theology, you're following a blind guide. There are plenty of these in our world. They stand on nice stages with lots of technology and lots of energy, but they do not show people the way to live like Christ. In the end, many of them turn out to be outright heretics. Jesus is not saying here that we should never help someone out or point to someone's error in their behavior or attitude or biblical understanding. He's saying that if we want to be helpful to others, then we must come to some place where we have been helped ourselves. If you went to a dermatologist because you were having a skin issue and you walked in the room and uh, the doctor came in and had some really serious skin conditions all over their arms and face, you may well be skeptical of their ability to help you. If you went to a personal trainer and you showed up and he was 400 pounds, you may not feel that confident in their training regimen. And if you went to the ER because you had a sliver in your eye, you would not feel very safe if the doctor coming to remove it had a nail sticking out of his own eye and blood and pus all over it. Now the doctor comes towards you with his tweezer. Run! (laughs) You know, we must have health if we're to be helpful to others. D.A. Carson said, but when a, brother is, uh, when a brother in a meek and self-judging spirit, that means we judge ourselves first, when a brother in a meek and self-judging spirit removes the log in his own eye, he still has the responsibility of helping his brother remove his speck. So Jesus isn't saying never to help someone. He's saying make sure that you're healthy first. So again, we, uh, we must have health if we would heal. Sometimes preaching a passage like this is tough. As much as it's tough to preach to you, it's much harder to preach to myself. And there are many moments of struggle in this study uh, when I'm over there and I think, there's no way I could preach these things. I'm not there yet. I see many flaws in myself. How then can I teach these things? How can I guide others? How can I help others with their specs? Well, I'm comforted that Paul did not consider himself to have arrived, and yet he preached. And Philippians 3, starting at verse 12, Paul said, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So when I have those times in the study when I'm like, how in the world can I preach this? I'm not there. What I must determine is this. 
that God has called me to preach things I have not yet been perfected in, as he has for many other servants of his in the church. How could Paul say, join in imitating me, at the same time as saying, I have not yet arrived? Well, Paul was not calling for imitation of his faults or failures. He was calling for imitation and forgetting what lies behind and straining forward for what lies ahead. In this, Paul was calling for imitation, that each would press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And our responsibility then is to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may have seemed to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. That's how a guy who's got it, not got it all together can come and preach the truth of the gospel to you because we're striving forward together. We're pressing on. And that's what we need to do to try to meet these criteria to judge not, to condemn not, to forgive and to give. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. I pray, Lord, that uh, as we evaluate ourselves, testing ourselves to see if we're in the faith, that you would bring to our attention, each of us on the individual level, those things that we must submit to you. If there's things, Lord, that we think in our thoughts that have not been submitted to you, may we do so. May you teach us better, Lord, to do a better job. Lord, as we uh, look forward to our future as a church and with you, I just ask that you would show us all grace towards each other. As we grow together, may we celebrate what you're doing in our lives. May we focus on the positive things that are happening rather than the failures. And may we press on, not looking back at the things that were in the past, but pressing on forward because of the glory that you have in store for us. May we trust your word, Lord, as we do it with your help. In Jesus' name, amen.